So, I felt like the Lord gave me something for you the first night we, we got here. And uh, so there's a reason I tend not to embarrass people. But uh, in, in your case, <laughs> you, need to, you need to step here. And it's this. Uh, I felt like the Lord wants you to know you belong. It's not that you belong to him. You already know that. It's not that you belong here. It's that you belong here. And you belong at the table with people who are leading worship and doing something significant. The Lord's going to give you the ability to emotionally attach and connect to that and to just feel like you belong. There's nothing wrong with feeling like you belong. There's a lot right with feeling that you belong. So you belong at the table. It's where you're supposed to be. Okay? You understand? Let's everybody let her know that she belongs. So the other thing is, uh, the first night I, I got something for uh, Ray Hollenbach. I don't, I don't see him now. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Um, I'm taking exception to your use of the word sir towards me. <laughs> so I think we're the same age, aren't we? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm definitely taking exception to the use of the word sir. Um, I, I saw a couple things. I saw that the Lord had given you a, uh, a message uh, that could become a book. And um, <laughs> so it's, a, uh, it's significant. And so you need to do that. But then the Lord showed me this. More significant than the message that became the book was the message of your life, which has been building bridges. And um, he showed me this thing about you building bridges. And then tonight... I saw a DNA strand that began to be taken apart. I was asking the Lord what that was, and he was showing me that as you build bridges, you don't just build bridges, you're actually imparting something of that DNA into every one that you build a bridge with. And so you're really establishing a generation of bridge builders. And so you have an inheritance that is generationally significant. It's going to go on well beyond your time here. So anyway, it was a very, very powerful thing that the Lord showed me. So, uh, anyway, uh, I'm sort of just all kind of twisted up in the Lord here, and um, hopefully I can um, see to, to be able to do this. And I'm not waiting for a phone call. I've got something on here that's not on here that I'm going to need to read to you at a certain point. So in case you were wondering if I was checking on a college football game or something, I'm not. It's just a piece of my message is on here. Woo, my goodness. Um, I got a little nervous when Adam said that these messages are going to be instantly posted on the web. <laughs> I'm already in some significant trouble, and uh, I, I'm not kidding about that. Uh, in addition to the rock-throwing incident that happened in Montana, while I was in Australia, I had somebody call. I was in Australia for three weeks, and... and I've gotten permission from the Lord to begin uncorking some of this that I've been trying to see get refined over, over some time. And uh, a guy called. Actually, I was on the plane going from Sydney to Brisbane with a friend of mine who was going to help with the conference in, in Brisbane. And uh, the Lord showed me I was getting ready to have a, a significant confrontation with the religious spirit, a very significant one, and that there was going to be something I was going to have to deal with. And, and I told him, I said, I have no idea what this is, but I know it's coming. And I know it's while we're here. 
And uh, the next morning, I got a phone call from a person who heads up our security at our ministry and uh, a guy that we'd had to remove from the, the congregation because he's profoundly demonized uh, and not the kind that you can get free. It's the religious variety. Uh, actually called and left a series of eight messages uh, threatening my family physically. And, of course, I'm in Australia, uh, 10,000 miles away. And so it's a bit of an issue. And so we, we've had... In addition, you know, I joke about the rock throwing, but there's been some threats and some other things made, and it's just, it's, it's patently demonic. So, I got no problem. I mean, I'm preaching this stuff, I'm, but it's got my attention. If you guys would pray for me and my family, I would appreciate that. Does that make sense? And so, I mean, I'm, uh, I believe what I'm doing is significant. Um, if it wasn't, I wouldn't leave my family. Does everybody understand? I mean, I'm not doing this because I need money. I have plenty of money. So if you're giving in the offering because you think I need money, don't give. I'm, I'm fine. Okay. So anyway, just thought I'd say that. All right. So anyway, but if you would pray, I would appreciate it. Now, I want to uncork something that uh, potentially could make everything else I've said look like kindergarten uh, unraveling. And so I'm going to say some things, and again, I'm going to establish them biblically. Uh, I appreciate everybody's opinion. I have my own, just like you. And, um, but honestly, I, I believe that what we really need, if we're going to be um, Christians that walk in something of significance and power, uh, and if we're going to move forward, um, I, I, I believe this is our foundation. You understand? And for everybody, including myself, who, who believes that they have a, a completely biblical foundation, we've got all kinds of things that we believe that don't find their origin here. You know, I've got them. I discover them all the time. Does everybody understand? So our, our goal tonight is to see God a little bit more clearly. So we're going to try to do that. Um, the average Western Christian... Uh, you can go ahead and flip the slide. The average Western Christian, in my opinion, I'm going to go down a list of things. You can just go ahead and run them. Struggles to feel a sense of God's pleasure over their life. I, I meet believers all the time who live uh, experientially separate from knowing just the love of God and God's pleasure over their life. I, I believe it is our heritage to walk around feeling and knowing God's pleasure, His love, His kindness, His goodness... I believe we can live in a chronic sense of that. I believe it's entirely possible. I believe we can walk around with this abiding sense of the favor of the Lord. We'll have interruptions to it. We'll have to battle a little bit for it. But I believe that's our heritage. I do not believe that is a pipe dream. I believe it is something that we can have. I absolutely believe it. And I believe it's something that we should, we should long after. I believe it's something, I believe it's, in many cases, it's the key to living an attractive, holy life. There's a beauty to holiness. And if you can hear this, I believe there was something about Jesus knowing the Father's love over him that caused people just to be absolutely attracted to him. That people were just, they were attracted to Jesus. Unbelievers were attracted to him. Unbelievers are repulsed by the average evangelical Christian in America. That's not right. Why? 
I believe it's because we're not walking around with a sense of God's pleasure over life. I believe we're struggling with this debilitating self-evaluation that's contrary to God's word over us. I believe we're walking around nervous, neurotic messes in many cases, concerned about everything that's wrong with us, and that vibe emanates from us and makes everybody around us nervous as well. Is it okay if I'm honest? Now, I'm talking about the average. I mean, now, you guys are all completely different. I know you walk all completely, absolutely, profoundly confident of God's love over your life. And so, um, this is, you can make good notes and you can talk to your friends who struggle with this. Because it doesn't affect any of us. Okay? So, yeah, there you go. The average Western Christian doesn't dwell in a heavenly place. They don't, they don't sense, you go ahead and run, they don't feel that sense of, whoa, I'm in God's presence. You know, how many of you did, today were surprised at how quickly you began to discover God's presence and feel it just by reading some scriptures? Well, if you can hear this, his presence didn't come. We just remembered where we are. Or in one sense, maybe his presence did come. But it, it didn't drop down from heaven. It came out of us. I mean, Josh has got this song going through his head. There's a river of life. Not, not coming down from heaven and sweeping into us. There's a river of life coming out of us. See, we, most of us, we're trying to figure out how to get God to get into our life. God's looking to, to get out of our life because he's already planted himself there. We're looking for the entrance. God's looking for the exit. So they don't dwell, or we don't dwell in having place. Next one. We have difficulty discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit from the voice of the accuser of the brethren. I'm going to tell you something. I'm just going to tell you definitively something that happens in this area. In between 2.45 and 4.15 in the morning, some of you wake up with just this, your thoughts racing of what you've not done, what you need to accomplish, what, what needs to happen, what you've not done. You're just, you wake up with your thoughts racing. 245 to 415, periodically. How many of you have that kind of thing happen? That's the accuser of the brethren coming at you in the middle of the night, just trying to unsettle you, get your day started poorly. Simple as that. You'll know that you're having substantial victory over this in your area when that begins to cease. And I believe you can see that. All right, let's go on. That's what the average Western Christian... Now, is it possible... And I'm going to ask a sort of a loaded question here. Is it possible, just go ahead and run it, that since our life was originally given by this face-to-face encounter with God, God creates us, lifts us up or bends down towards us, gets right in our face and breathes into us the breath of life, is it possible that since our life came originally from a face-to-face encounter with God that the enemy's greatest attack against Christians is to keep us from seeing God clearly? In other words, to get in between our face and God's. Think about that. Maybe that's the whole confusion over if you see God's face, you'll die. Maybe that's the whole confusion. Because when we actually see him as he is, the scripture says we become like him. Maybe when we see him, we're going to see him 
very clearly and very differently than what we've imagined, and maybe something dramatic is going to happen to us. And by the way, I know some of you, when I threw out that concept about if you see God's face, you'll die, that's not true. Some of you are thinking about Exodus 33 where it says, the Lord said to Moses, uh, you can't see my face, for no one can see my face and live. I have news for you. Not seeing, or seeing God's face and not living is not the same as seeing God's face and dying. Have you guys, you already preached this message? Okay. It says in that scripture, I believe it's Exodus thirty-three twenty. no one can see my face and live. And we've translated that, or rather interpreted it, if you see my face, you will die. That's not what he said. If you look up the original language there, which I don't know much of it, but I know enough to, to know what it means, it says this, no one can see my face and preserve their life the way it was before. Come on. Isn't that what we're after? No one can see my face and be the same after the encounter. That's what it means. In fact, that's what happened to Moses. Moses saw God face to face, said to him several times, and not in that encounter he didn't, but he, 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 he knew, God knew him face to face, spoke to him face to face. So much so that at the end of his life, the scripture says Moses' natural life force was not diminished in the least, and his vision had not failed. It had not even dimmed. And then it says that in Deuteronomy 34, that God took Moses out, showed him the promised land, and then it says there Moses died according to the word of the Lord. Apparently, Moses was so transformed physically by his encounters with the face of God that he could not have died naturally had God not spoken to him and said, Moses, die. True story. You ever wonder why it says that Michael the archangel is, is battling and contending with Lucifer over the body of Moses? And Jude, you ever wonder about these, or Peter, wherever it is, those, you ever wonder about these archaic random scriptures? Conservative Bible commentators believe that the enemy was contending with Michael over the body of Moses in order to let Israel find it, and they would carry him around and worship him as a god or as an idol because his body would not have corrupted. Because in seeing God face to face, he could not preserve his life the way it was before. Ladies and gentlemen, when we see God clearly, when we see him for who he is, we don't stay the same. We don't stay the same. We can't preserve our life the way it was before. Okay? So, my belief then is that the enemy is trying to keep us from seeing God clearly, and he's doing this. He's masquerading as God, the Holy Spirit, misrepresenting him to keep us from walking in strength, salvation, the kingdom of God, and the power of Christ. That's right, you heard it right here. I believe that the enemy masquerades as the Holy Spirit to keep us wrongly afraid of God, to keep us wrongly evaluating ourselves, to keep us conscious of our sin instead of conscious of the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. Can I go on? The only basis for our faith is the Bible. 
Okay? We all believe that. I believe that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, has been masquerading as God. Let's look at the reason the Holy Spirit was sent and what Jesus said he would do when he came. Not our opinions, but let's look at the Bible. I only want to look at history. I want to look at the Bible. Let's look at John chapter 16, verse 7. Now this is, everybody okay with this? Have you ever done this? This John 16 thing, what I'm getting ready to do? No. Okay. I've only done this twice, and once was outside of the country. But I'm starting to say it now. Jesus said this, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the comforter is not going to come to you. But if I depart, I'm going to send him unto you. And when he has come, okay, when he's come, here's what he'll do. I'll put this one up. Trying to put it up. Yep, go ahead. Purpose of the Holy Spirit. When he's come, this is what he'll do. Verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's break this down. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. King James says because of unbelief or convict the world of unbelief. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is the threefold purpose of that the Holy Spirit was given. Now, let's go on to the next slide. Here's what the average evangelical believes. Now, you guys are well beyond average, so it's, it's other people, but you know, at least now we'll know how to help other people. We intuitively believe that the Holy Spirit is given to convict us when we sin, to convict us when we fail in righteousness, to convict us that God will judge us if we do not straighten up. And we have experienced that he does this, all of us, have experienced that this is how we relate to the Holy Spirit. However, it is not what Jesus said he came to do. Is this that quiet evaluation? Okay, I just want to make sure it wasn't the quiet rejection. I'm, I've been away from my family a little while, so I'm, I'm feeling that loved. I mean, you guys are doing a good job, but I mean, you know, there's, there's limits. Okay. Let's examine it. Let's go on down, first one. Convicting the world of sin. So what he said. He didn't say convicting the believers of sin. Convicting the world of sin because they do not believe. How does the Holy Spirit primarily, or excuse me, convicting the world, not us, of unbelief? How does he do that? Primarily by, check it out, Acts 1.8. This is a prophecy concerning the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power to be witnesses unto me. The Holy Spirit will empower you to demonstrate me to the world because they do not believe and they need to see that I am real and that my kingdom is real by you moving in signs and wonders, a supernatural life. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not even given, this is going to sound outrageous, is not even given to bring unbelievers under the conviction of their own sin primarily he is given to empower us to demonstrate him, his reality, and the kingdom so that they will believe he is real. I know what I'm saying cuts across every bit of church culture that exists in this part of the country and in every other place in America. All I'm doing is basing this on the Bible. 
Are you following me? I'm not a heretic. By the way, the definition that we have of heresy is not even accurate. It's true. Biblically, it is not what everybody thinks it is. That's a different time. Let's go on to the next one. Okay, let's keep looking. Of righteousness, because you see me no longer. Check this out. The Holy Spirit is given to convince us that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ, that we have been redeemed by him. You don't need the Holy Spirit to convince you when you mess up. How many of you are instantaneously aware when you mess up? And if you're not, there are about 10 people who you know that will remind nobody in the church, but other places who will remind you. Go on. How, uh, that same thing. How many of you need to be reminded of what's wrong with you and what you've done wrong? No, we have plenty of that. What we need is to be reminded of what's right with us, what's happened. I mean, do we really believe that the Holy Spirit is given to remind us of the old things that Jesus said have been passed away? Or are we to be reminded that, yes, all things are now new? Our walk is a walk of faith. How much faith does it take to believe that you are still in your sins? Not very much. How much faith does it take to believe that you really have been made righteous with God? That takes faith. That takes you to another place. When you begin to believe when the Holy Spirit convicts you that you are righteous, something awakens in you. See, some people are nervous about this. They think, well, Steve, if, if we start believing that we're righteous, then we're not going to have any motivation to not sin. I don't think guilt over your sin that motivates you to consciously be or constantly be conscious of your sin to try and work through it and over it, is really producing that much holiness in the church. But what would happen if we began to really walk by faith and began to be, what the scripture says, sanctified by faith? But Steve, if we begin to think of ourselves that way, we're going to get arrogant. We're going to get prideful. Let me, let me give you a story. Some of you may have heard this, but let me, let me give you a story. I got these three beautiful girls, 12, 9, and 7. And the nine and the seven-year-old, they're, they're just, they glow. They're just unbelievable. And my, my nine-year-old Mariah was at my mother's house one day. My mother's a, she's a wonderful Christian woman, raised very, very, in a very difficult situation, grew up with a strong sense of natural human righteousness and, and Christianity. And so, but she's wanting to encourage my daughter. And she just loves her. And so she says, Mariah, you are beautiful. And Mariah looks back at her and she says, I know it. And my mother was disturbed. And, I mean, she wanted to encourage her, but she, she didn't really want her to believe it. Because if she believed it, then she was going to know that she was beautiful and she was going to be arrogant. And nothing is worse than pride and arrogance to natural, humanly driven Christianity. We're terrified of it. We're so terrified of it that we've called insecurity, humility, 
when insecurity is really fear. Are you listening to me? Insecurity is what you call your fear when you want to keep it around like a pet. And see, the enemy has got us so unconfident, so insecure, and so fearful, and he guards that place in our lives by calling it humility. And so my mother, is, she is provoked when my daughter, she, honestly, she was offended that my daughter was confident in being beautiful at the ripe old age of four. And so my mother, I mean, thank God she did not respond by saying, well, you know, you're not that attractive, and you know, (laughs) she didn't do that. She had what I thought was a word of wisdom. She was provoked. She told me the story. She said, this bothered me. So here's what she said. She said, Mariah, how do you know that you're beautiful? Mariah looked back at her and she said, because my daddy tells me I'm beautiful. See, when we believe what God has spoken over us, it is the most profound humility. There is no room for arrogance. There's no room for pride because it's not born of self-evaluation. She had not looked in the mirror and seen how she was matching up with the standard described as beauty. Oh, my eyes are lovely. My hair, my nose is the right size, shape. My cheekbones are high. My skin is lovely. She didn't do that. She simply believed the word over her by her father And she was transformed by that, and she was living up to it. And that is the most profound humility. So what are you saying? I'm saying maybe we become holy more quickly by hearing God speak over us. You're holy. You're blameless. I see no stain on you. Maybe when we are constantly reminded of everything that's wrong with us, we live in this chronically insecure fallen, sin-conscious state that is contrary to the gospel. So what are you saying? I'm saying the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of righteousness. What do you mean? You mean he's not here to remind you of what's wrong with you? No, he's here to remind you of what's right with you by divine gift, by the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's go on down and see that. Of judgment, because the prince of this world has been judged. Not that he's coming back, and boy is he, you know, angry. You've seen those bumper stickers. Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he upset. It's ridiculous. No, that's not biblical. Of judgment, because the prince of this world has been judged, we should be walking around with a conviction of the Holy Spirit that the enemy is a defeated foe and has been judged. Which means we should walk around with confidence in seeing sicknesses flee, demonic problems broken. We should walk around with confidence to be able to be generous in a greedy or a fearful world. See, when I'm talking about the supernatural, I'm not just talking about uh, moving in healing and signs and those kinds of wonders. I'm talking about moving in generosity. Forgiveness is supernatural. See, all of these are supernatural things. Donating your time, you know, moving in a contrary spirit. 
reaching out when everybody else is drawing away. All of these things are supernatural. The prince of this world has been judged. Go on. The Holy Spirit is given to convince us that we are empowered and that the enemy is defeated. The enemy is still trying to convince us that he is empowered. There's no biblical place given in Scripture in the New Testament where we are supposed to be afraid of the enemy. He's given to remind us that we have been, and this is so offensive sounding, that we have been exalted by God. That's what, I mean, we have been, and that sounds horrendous in a religious environment. And put above the enemy. He is under our feet by our divine placement by God. Somebody said to me one time, man, the enemy's just beating me senseless. And I said, are your feet sore? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, he's under your feet. Is he, I mean, does it tickle? This is not mental gymnastics. This is not Christian science. This is not saying that these things don't exist. It's not saying that they, they aren't real. Do you understand? But it's Christian sense. It's the true sense that a Christian should have. That we know that we have been placed above these things. Okay? Now, I realize this could be stirring up a lot of questions for people. Thank you. It said keep looking. Just a joke between he and I. Okay. Who then is doing the accusing? Let's go on and look at it. Let's look at Revelation 12 to see God's plan for transforming the nations and the enemy's scheme for interrupting God's plan. I believe Revelation 12 can help us unravel the confusion and begin to see God more clearly and to experience his power. Now, I realize, you know, we could have done a bunch of ministry. We could have prophesied over everything that moved. We could have done all that. But I feel like we need to do this to give you some tools to deal with this moving forward and some understanding. Revelation chapter 12. I don't venture very much into things that have to be uh, interpreted figuratively and all this, but I think this is really important, okay? Because it shows some principles. Revelation chapter 12 says this, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was in... She was with child, she was pregnant, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, uh, seven crowns on his head. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. He cast them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman, which was ready to be delivered, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now let me give you a quick principle here. Most of you know this. In Scripture, every time that a deliverer was born and was raised up to be a deliverer in any kind of significant fashion, the enemy always sought to devour that deliverer in their infancy. When Moses was born and would be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt, it came into the heart of Pharaoh to have all of the Hebrew male children killed, cast into the river. 
the, the enemy plans to destroy or to devour a deliverer in their infancy. When Jesus was born and he was going to be the deliverer of all mankind from the fall or uh, uh, redeem mankind, don't think I'm overstating something there, but when he came to be that deliverer, again, the enemy put in the heart of Herod to have all the Hebrew males under two years of age killed. Okay? The enemy always seeks to devour or to destroy a deliverer in their infancy. And do you know why? Because when a deliverer is mature, there is no stopping them. You can only destroy a deliverer in their infancy. That's why the enemy rises up so powerfully. If you want to know why the enemy is raging on the planet currently, it's because I believe there's a generation of deliverers that are alive on the planet today. I really believe this, and I believe something dramatic. We're in a, we're in a dramatic shift right now that is remarkable. Okay, Verse 5, And the woman brought forth a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her a certain amount of days, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, I, I want to tell you this. I believe that the, the woman travailing here is the traditional church, the church that exists, it's the church on the planet that is in a process right now just struggling in great pain, in great turmoil. The church... I mean, across America, across the Western world is in great turmoil right now. Are you aware of that? People are struggling. Old systems that people have tried just aren't working anymore. All of a sudden, people's lives are just, they're hitting the rails. They don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not abandoning God, but they're, they're, they're just lost. Things that they have not understood or things that they thought they understood, they're just getting shaken from them. And really what's happening is there is a child being born out of this church that is going to be a deliverer. And I'm not talking about an elite group of people. That's not what I'm talking about. The whole, the whole woman could be the whole child. Is this making sense? Okay, I'm not talking about some elitist group or anything like that. But here's what's happening. This male child is going to rule the nations. It's going to disciple the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, Now, let me tell you, I've struggled with this for years. Because this didn't make any sense to me. I thought, now, why would somebody, God raise up somebody to rule the nations with a rod of iron? Because that doesn't even sound, that, is, that sounds contrary to God's nature. He's always been winsome. He's always been, uh, uh, it's by invitation. There's always been free will. This sounds oppressive. This sounds separate and different. From, just as I said, that sounds separate and different. From his nature. But it's not. It's because we've misunderstood this. We take our symbolism, a rod of iron, and that sounds like something you beat someone into submission with, right? So I was, I was crying out about this. And I discovered this. Well, the, a rod in Scripture speaks of authority, but iron I thought of as, as like something that was heavy, something that you could beat people with. But iron is something different. Iron is a catalyst. Iron causes catalytic change. Let me read this to you real quickly. Hopefully it's still up here. 
In chemistry, a catalyst is any element or compound that initiates a reaction without also fusing into that reaction. For example, you can take nitrogen and hydrogen, two of the most common elements on earth, put them in a container, close the lid, come back a day later, and nothing will have happened. You can put nitrogen and you can put hydrogen in a container and leave them there and nothing will happen. However, if you add ordinary iron into the equation, you will pretty quickly get ammonia. It's an important ingredient in fertilizers, polymers, and glass cleaners. And here's the thing. Ammonia has no iron in it whatsoever. It's made solely of hydrogen and nitrogen. The iron in that equation, listen to this, remains unchanged it just facilitates the bonding of two things that could not join otherwise. Are you guys following this? We are called to go into the nations with, the, with catalytic authority to see things that cannot be joined without our involvement be joined together. In other words, the natural and the supernatural. The fallen and God. But check this out. For them to get together and us not to be fused into the equation. I mean, can you imagine a church and a people that actually got people connected with God, not themselves? Think about that. Think about what could happen. We would then be free to continue. The other thing is we were unchanged. See, there are people that are nervous about going into financial arenas, going into the arts, going into entertainment, going into all these areas to try and bring about catalytic change. Well, if you're trying to do it naturally, you're going to be, in, you're going to be influenced by uh, the evil that currently captures those systems or that... that permeates those systems. But if you go in as a supernatural catalyst, you will be unfazed by the bonding that occurs that you can bring. Is this too theoretical? Okay. We're seeing this kind of stuff in small measure. I know people that are ending up with crazy positions of influence in sectors and spheres of human influence that they have no business being in. I mean, they look at me and they say, I, I, there, I have no idea how I got here. It, it, is, it has to be a divine thing. Don't get me wrong, they're gifted, they're talented, but they're, they're being promoted. Uh, CEOs of huge companies uh, have handpicked these people and they don't know why. And they listen to them, and they don't know why. And they are speaking for righteousness, and they are speaking for the kingdom. There are governments that people are speaking into supernaturally right now. It makes no sense whatsoever. The course of some governments in developing countries are being turned literally by believers who have the ears of some of the greatest government leaders in these developing countries. It's remarkable. I know a guy who has an 8th grade education who is sharing the platform with former U.S. presidents as he speaks in the developing world. 
He lives in Ohio, by the way. Just amazing stuff. It's this catalytic authority of the supernatural. What, what are you saying? Well, let's go on. This is really remarkable. Okay? This male child, this, this child with authority. Now, what was going to happen with that child as soon as it was born? What happened to it? It what? Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, who else got caught up to the throne? Well, of course, Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a given. I mean, that's, there's nothing unique about that. It was that church in Laodicea that overcame the temptation to just believe that we're involved in a bunch of natural things and went back to the supernatural source. That church was granted to sit with the Lord on his throne. What are you saying? I'm saying that this male child, this one who will disciple the nation supernaturally, is the church that overcomes this Laodicean temptation just to be enamored with the natural and will be granted to live a supernatural life while living on this planet. And it's not a hard repentance. The repentance is to hear his voice, communicate with him, get back out of religious systems, get into just relationship with him, live a life with him, do what he says, have massive amounts of fun while we're doing it, raise wonderful, loving, winsome children, have great marriages, and just enjoy God while bringing the kingdom and being unfazed by the world that we change. Is this a quiet evaluation again? Okay, just checking. Well, that sounds pretty good. How do we do it? Well, look at this. Verse 7. Was that somebody, is that what somebody was thinking? Okay. Verse 7. There's a very practical way to do this here. And there was a war in heaven. Now listen to this. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And they didn't prevail, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Listen. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right, now listen, this is, this is incredible. You, gotta, you have to follow this. I did not put this in the PowerPoint because I, I want to paint the word picture. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, at this moment, at this point, now is come salvation, strength, the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. John equates strength, salvation, the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ coming. He equates that with the accuser being cast down. The accuser of the brethren is the one that is keeping you and I from having strength, salvation, experiencing the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ. Are you listening? How? Here's how. You ready for this? All right. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God 
day and night. Now, there are people that think, and this is an interpretation of the scriptures, that what was happening here is this is when Jesus died and the accuser was cast down because his blood was shed and all that. And there's a truth to that. Don't get me wrong. That's foundation. I mean, that's the foundation for all this. But there are people that think what this is communicating is that the enemy used to go before God day and night and say, you got to judge him. You know, he's, he was accusing us before God. But doesn't that seem a little bit bizarre? Now, let's just think about it. God's sitting on the throne, and the accuser comes to him day and night, accusing us. I mean, what's God's response to that? Well, he's really believable. I mean, he is Satan and everything, but you know, he's believable. Why would Satan, appearing before God, have power? I mean, is God going to be deceived by him? See, the same people who say sin can't be in God's presence if, if, if you do something wrong, God departs from you, those same people believe that Satan himself can appear before God. Are you following me? This does not make sense. Don't run to that. It's a mystery thing. Don't run to that. This is not supposed to be a mystery. Jesus said, I, Father, I think you've revealed these things to the simple. Let me tell you what this is. The accuser was cast down. Hey, we'll find out in just a minute who did it. Okay? You ready? The accuser who appeared and accused them before our God day and night. Either the first or the second commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me. You should have no other gods that come in between my face and yours. The accuser of the brethren was accusing them before our God day and night. The accuser was superimposing and is superimposing his face and himself and his voice in between us and God and he's masquerading as God accusing us and we're buying into it and we're staying in bondage to our past and to the old. And we live separate from the God who removed the separation. I can feel this hitting your minds right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what's happening practically is the, the accuser is appearing in the middle of the night, 2.45 to 4.15, 7 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock in the morning, and he's speaking to you, he's masquerading as God, he's, he's bringing up your sin, he's doing all of this, and you think it's God convicting you. You think it's the Holy Spirit convicting you so you can repent, so he can be happy, so he can move. But the problem is the cycle goes on all the time. And what was supposed to have been a once-for-all dealing of sin so that we could live in righteousness, we never find. We constantly stay in this cycle. And we're so enamored with ourselves and our sinfulness and everything else that we never become the strength, the salvation, the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ into the nations we're called to be.
Steve, that can't be right. That is way too simple. I'm telling you this is absolutely the truth. Now that it gets practical. Can everybody buy into the before God day and night? Okay. Check this out. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, this is not primarily based on our efforts. This is based on what Jesus did. The blood of the Lamb. Hey, I have been washed. I have been cleansed. The accuser speaks to me. Take that somewhere else. That debt has been paid. That is my past. Old things are passed away. All things are made new. That is in the past. That is under the blood. That is gone. That is cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He has taken my sin as far as the east is from the west. That's brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, on the planet, you can only go north until you get to the North Pole and you begin going south. You can only go south until you get to the South Pole, then you begin going north. North and south meet at two places on our planet, but you can go east forever and never begin going west. God has taken our sins as far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance that never meets. Can you feel that? And some of us are nervous about believing that. Ladies and gentlemen, that is faith in its most basic element right there. To believe that. What's the power of that? The power of that is that you begin to then believe that you really are righteous because of what Jesus has done. And you can walk in the boldness that we're supposed to have. The scripture says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. We should be able to go boldly to the throne of grace. I mean, boldly, by the blood of the Lamb. We should be able to go boldly to God. We don't go boldly to God. We go sheepishly. Sometimes we don't go at all. We're afraid. And we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to go boldly to the throne of God to, re- to obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. I was sitting and working recently. It's a bad analogy, but it's the only one I got. I was sitting working recently uh, in a chair, and I just had my computer on my lap, and I was typing, and I'm writing a book. And my daughter comes over, my 12-year-old, and tries to crawl up on my lap. And I said, baby, I'm working. She said, I don't care. She pushed the computer out of the way and got on my lap. And I was thrilled. Because she knows my heart. She comes bold. She doesn't care what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. She's got a right and she exercises it. And it's delightful to me. Think about this. Do you think God wants us insecure? Do you think he wants us feeling this accusation? No, he's looking for us to overcome this accuser. Oh, my goodness. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You're going to have to use the word of your testimony against the accuser of the brother. You're going to have to speak. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to deal with this thing. Based on the blood, based on the sacrifice of Jesus, based on that offering, but we're going to have to break that accusing voice over our life and over other people's lives. 
And then the last thing is they love not their lives even unto the death. And I don't think that speaks about martyrdom personally. I mean, it could ultimately. But it, what it speaks about is this. Just like Jesus did not love his own life to death, but he went with whatever the revealed will of the Father was. When God speaks to us, we respond and we do. And when we see something in Scripture that we need to bend and change, we bend and we change and we go on. That's not loving our lives even unto death. We just go on. We submit ourselves to the truth. We yield to God. I promise you, if you can gain confidence in the blood of Jesus, if you will learn to declare and hold on to the truth of what is true about you based in this, that reminding of righteousness by the Holy Spirit and begin to war and not love your life even unto death, I will tell you this, you can begin to experience strength, salvation, the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ. And I'm not just talking about deliverance for you. We're called to be deliverers. We are called to be deliverers. When this accusation is dealt with, I tell you what we're going to find. We're going to find a world where the enemy doesn't have near the power we think. Some of you are nervous about that. What was the third thing the Holy Spirit came to do? Convict us that the prince of this world has been judged. He's been judged. You've been taught that it would be arrogant and dangerous to believe that. Religiously, that's what you've been taught through your, through your Christian history. Who wants you to be afraid of the enemy? Think about it. What are you saying ultimately? I'm saying this. The Holy Spirit is given to empower you. The Holy Spirit is given to encourage and to bless you and to remind you of what's right based on what Jesus has done. And he's also given to remind you, to convince you that the enemy has been judged. Every bit of that has to do with empowerment. What are you saying? We are supposed to be so bold, so confident in God that it makes religious people go absolutely crazy. I kid you not. And if you need a biblical example of this, we probably do. It is David, too young to fight in the armies of God, ending up leading the armies of God. I mean, David went to the battle to actually take a couple of cheeses to his brother's captain so that they get a better position in the battle. He sees what's going on. He sees the insecurity. He sees the fear. He sees the cowering before the enemy. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? He speaks boldly, and they are so provoked by it. They said, what's up with you? Where are those few sheep that you watch? In other words, you're not a man of battle. You don't know anything about this. And he said, what's the problem? Is there not a cause? David was not stating that out of an arrogance or even any remote self-confidence. I mean, when I first read that and really saw it, I thought that is the most bizarre insult to, to throw out to the Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I mean, come on, pick something else. 
I mean, isn't that a bizarre thing to say? I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just, it's the Bible. I mean, you just think, why didn't he say, you know, you got the head the size of a Buick or something? I mean, why? Why uncircumcised? And it was this, because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. He was saying this, you may be greater than me, but I have a covenant with God. I am in a covenant with God, and there is no way that you can stand before anyone who has a covenant with God. He had that kind of boldness. He had that kind of declaration. And it was a humility based in understanding a covenant that God had made. We're supposed to have that kind of confidence and religious people will throw rocks. They'll threaten your family. They will say that you're a heretic. They will say the craziest of things. You better be prepared for it. But the reality is We cannot cower in fear. And as this male child is born, as a group, and that's nothing mystical and weird, it's just a group of people beginning to understand and realize this exalted place that God has called them up to, being caught up to God and His throne. The other church is a persecuted church. It's running in fear when no one is chasing That's a biblical symbolism. I need somebody to respond. So if I need to keep beating this dead horse or if you guys are on board. Okay. We have to support one another. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to war over ourselves. We've got to war over our children. We cannot let anyone go by the wayside and be devoured by the enemy through this accusation, through this reminder of their past. You know, Paul, when he was talking to the Romans, at one point he was saying this. He was saying, man, this is very difficult because of your lack of ability to understand. I've got to communicate, and my lack of ability to communicate with you, I've got to bring up your past in order to make an analogy. And when he said, when I'm bringing up your past, I'm speaking after the manner of men. Because in the economy and in the understanding of God, your past no longer exists. It's been washed away. To remind you of your past weaknesses, Paul had to speak after the manner of men because God won't do it. So where's this accusation coming from? Let's, let's do this. Let's do a very practical thing real quickly, and then we'll, we'll shift. I want everybody to, you can just put your rocks down. It was a joke. That didn't work, like most of them haven't. Um, put your stuff down. I just want you to... Just stand up and find somebody quickly that you don't know very well. And we're going we're gonna to do something very quick to help support one another here. Just find somebody. You, you have to step out real quickly. Just find somebody you don't know very well. Okay, does everybody have a new buddy? If you don't have a new friend, raise your hand. 
That way the people who have their hands up can connect with one another. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little exercise, and we're going to help each other very quickly here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a type of a prophetic exercise, but don't be nervous. I break that accusation that you can't prophesy. Here's what we're going to do. You don't have to come up. You don't have to wait on the Lord. You don't have to hear him speak to you about anything. What we're going to do is this. We're going to think about what we would want, the best blessing, the best prayer, the best thing that we could imagine someone praying for us, praying over us, or blessing us with, and then we're just going to bless that person with that. We're going to pray for them like we would want somebody to pray for us. It can be greater sense of the presence of God, you know, more power, signs and wonders, uh, uh, more money. I mean, you, know, you just pray whatever you want. No, I'm serious. I'm not trying to... Why well, be religious? Now, don't get weird, okay? But... And no correction. Don't slip into, I think God is saying that, you know, you need to fast more. None of that. We're not going to do anything like that. We're just praying a blessing over this person. And really, just, just go for it. I mean, just try to bless them in the way that you would want somebody to bless you. Everybody do that? Okay. Just go ahead. Do it one at a time so that the person is able to benefit from what you're saying. Put a good old blessing on them. Just, just pray for more, more, more. Just, it's the greatest thing you could imagine somebody praying over you.
and be sure and switch it up and let the other person pray for you, unless you've already done that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Okay, bring that to a close in the next 30 seconds, and we're going to do one more thing. Just stay where you are.